0: All right. thanks David. How are we this morning? Good, good Good to hear it. Well, if you have his word, I hope you do. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. We'll be going from the middle of 45 all the way through 47. So for the next three hours, I'm excited to be with you. Uh, Just kidding. Well, if I haven't met you, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to be with you all uh, this morning. So Genesis 45, we'll be starting in verse 16. Uh, I I thought about this week as I was taking a look at this passage and considering it was all that God has has showed us here. uh, I thought of an experience that I got to have. I think it was sometime towards the beginning of last year. Uh, As many of you might know, my wife and Meredith, my wife Meredith and I, and my son Benjamin, we just moved here to Cincinnati from Washington D.C. And in the corner of the city that we lived in, we were pretty close to what's called like the historic uh, embassy row. So up Connecticut Avenue in DC and then all the way around us all surrounding where we lived in Georgetown were all these different embassies. It was such a cool experience and we heard one day that they were actually going to open up a few of the embassies to go visit. And so we went to this open day at this at the German embassy just about half a mile from our house and so I had a couple of pictures uh, from that and so we were there, and like basically, us and all these other people were going inside. And you can see they were like showcasing like all the German cars. That was just a couple of them. I decided like Germany just does cars better, and so that was nice and cool. And and we got to go there. And then there's another picture. They have like a piece of the Berlin Wall. These people were there taking pictures beside it. They had German food and music and all of these things. It was a pretty exciting day. And as I thought about this passage, I was thinking about this day and this experience a lot. And it was really fascinating because, like I said, I was only about a mile from my house. Like from my front door, I basically went about a half a mile to a mile away from my front door. And there I was in a totally different place with a totally different people. Because even though I was close, these embassies, they represented another nation. They worked in the United States, but they carried out the interests of Germany in every way that they could manage here in the United States. Their lives looked like they were in Germany. They looked like their home country. As I thought this week about our situation and where we pick up in the story of Joseph and him living in Egypt and working under Pharaoh, I was reminded of this day because I think what we see in Joseph's life is an example of what it looks like to live faithfully for God in a foreign land where we are in exile. In this example of Joseph's life, he was a sojourner. He lived and worked in Egypt, but Egypt was not his home. And I think that in really significant ways, his life reflected that. His allegiance we see in this passage today was to God and to his people. And friends, this morning... I would suggest to us that our situation is no different. The Bible tells us that we, like Joseph, are exiles. That we are sojourners and strangers here on earth, and this earth is not our home. And so my hope for us this morning is that as we study this passage, a few points of application will be highlighted for us is how God calls us to be faithful sojourners here on earth. So this morning, I want to just walk through this passage together this morning with some notes, and then I have really just three ways of application, ways or examples of what it looks like for us to faithfully sojourn here on earth. Let's read in Genesis chapter 45, we'll pick up in verse 16, Uh, it says this, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. So you remember they have this big reunion just before this, and and the news kind of spreads around. It makes its way back to Pharaoh. He's heard the news that the brothers have come. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes." And to his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the goods and the things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers on the way, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. He said that maybe in the car on the way here, right? Two kids. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. Not quite true, but that's what they felt. And his heart became numb, it said, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die. It's interesting that here in this passage, it's actually under Pharaoh's command that they go back and pick up their father and everybody in their house and bring their family uh, back to Egypt. That's Pharaoh's direction and command of Joseph. And he's very generous with this, right? In both verse 18 and verse 20, we see this repeated idea that Joseph said, or Pharaoh says, the best of the land is going to be here waiting on you, so pack light. Pack light, because you don't need to bring anything with you. Don't worry about what you have. I'll have everything for you as you go, and there will be things waiting for you here as you come. So pack light. I think that shows us a couple things, doesn't it? I think first it shows us that that God was able to work in and provide for his people, even through an unbelieving Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't know him. Pharaoh was not a God-fearer, but God was able to work and provide for his people through them. But secondly, I think it shows us that Joseph must have really made a mark on Pharaoh. That not only was he willing to raise him to a position of prominence, remember, this was a prisoner not a few years before. Not only was he raised to a position of prominence, but Pharaoh was willing to care for the whole of his family. So Joseph Joseph does, as as, as Pharaoh commands, he sends them on their way back to Egypt and everything that they could need, with everything they could need and more. And as one writer says, it just serves as a reminder of how comprehensively he had covered and forgiven all the wrong that was done to him. this gift was just a foretaste of what was to come. But we highlighted this before. I think this is interesting. In verse 24, it says, do not quarrel on the way. We're familiar with that conversation, right? He knew his brothers well. He said, do not quarrel on the way. One writer points out that this word, it, it seems to us like maybe he's telling his brothers, hey, don't bicker on the way back. But his, one writer actually points out that this word actually means to tremble or to shake. So don't quarrel on the way actually means don't tremble and to shake. So Joseph isn't telling his brothers not to bicker. What he's telling them is to not have fear or anxiety over what they had done Or the situation that they found himself in. Because they'd been forgiven and they were going to be cared for. So I have no fear. So we pick back up in chapter 46. It says this, looking at verses 1 through 7. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to God, the father father of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I shall also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his, and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All of his offspring he brought into Egypt. And what we see in verses 8, really down to, uh, down to about 28, is we see just this, this list of everyone that was, that was going with him. All these people, all of his children and their children. So it's Jacob's children and grandchildren going with them. And it says in verse 26 all the persons belonging to Jacob who came out to Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 people in all. That's a pretty big caravan. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. A number is significant. It symbolizes that there's completion and purpose to them coming back together. But we pick up in verse 28. It says this, And he sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and you and will say to him, my brothers and and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And hear this, this is, what jo- this is what Joseph tells them to say, when Pharaoh calls you and asks you what is your occupation, you shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even till now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. That's interesting, hold on to that. Looking at the first 12 verses of 47, it says, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds, and all that they possess have come to the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. So here's the setup. Joseph said, this is what's going to happen. We're going to get to Pharaoh. You're going to say this. He's going to ask you this, and this will be your response. And so that's exactly what's happening here. Verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, Just as planned, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds. As our fathers were, they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flock, for this famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them... Put them in charge of my livestock. Basically, I've got a job, a place to stay, and food to eat, whatever they need. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and, stu- and, and stood before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the, days of my, the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days and years of my life, and they have not attained to the days and years of my life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and his father's household with food according to To the number of their dependents. There's a lot to see here in this chunk of the passage, but these few things stand out. In verses one through four, we see that this familiar pattern repeating throughout Genesis, where God meets Jacob in a dream and again speaks this promise of blessing over them as the family now journeys to Egypt. And here's why that's significant that, that God would meet Jacob in a dream on the way to Egypt. Because up until this point, all the way throughout Genesis, these theophanies or appearances of God to people have primarily been to remind them of the covenant and up until this point have been used to point and reassure the people as they journeyed to the promised land. That's not what's happening now here, is it? Now they're journeying away from the promised land. And so this reassurance shows them that God was at work in this. God was at work in all of this. Verses 46, at the, end of, uh, at the end of chapter 46, verses 28 through 34, we see, this, uh, we see this happen as Joseph goes out to meet his family in Goshen. Now, Goshen was an area of Egypt, somewhere between Canaan and the city center of Egypt where Joseph would have been. So the brothers would have been passing through this land back and forth, more or less, on the way. And so we see this, this scene as he goes out and is reunited with his father. And it's this emotional reunion. And they have this time together. But really quick, Joseph gets down to business, and he's got some specific instructions for them. He tells them, when, when you see Pharaoh, I want you to tell him this exactly. When he asks, tell them that, you, that you're, you're shepherds, and you just want to settle in the land of Goshen. Now, hold on to that for a minute. We're going to pick back up on that later, but I want you to recognize here that, that Joseph's up to something. Joseph's got a plan in mind, and he's setting it up before it even happens. But in verse 7 of chapter 47, this interesting scene unfolds where Jacob comes in and meets Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh had said, bring your father and all your family. And so, and so J- uh, Joseph brings five of his brothers and then eventually his father, Jacob, up to meet Pharaoh. And what happens here is kind of interesting because Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And understand, there's a little bit of irony to this. And it might just seem like Jacob is just expressing his gratitude for Pharaoh. And I think that's part of it. But again, there's some irony to this blessing. Because in the ancient world, it was the person of greater significance who blessed the person of lesser significance. It was the person providing care and food and water and a place to live, the person of greater wealth or status, that would be blessing the person of lesser status, So recognize that. Even though Pharaoh was the one providing the land to live in and the food to eat, it was Jacob who was giving the blessing. If you think back to the original covenant that God made with Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, what did God say? God said to Abraham, I will bless you and make you a great nation that through you all the families of the earth would be blessed. God told them that he would bless them, that they might be a blessing to the nations. And this meant that Jacob knew that God was with them and knew that God was working through them to be a blessing to the nations, to be a blessing to Egypt, even as they sought refuge there as sojourners. So finally, chapter 47 ends with this. Essentially, what we're seeing on display at the end of verse, chapter 47 is really just Joseph's prudence as a businessman. Because we see the scene of all these people coming to him, and they, I'm sure that the reputation has gone before him. They know that, that he's a person who's a provider, that he's caring, he's giving food and everything that these people could need. And eventually, the famine lasts so long, remember, it's about seven years, and it lasts so long that these people are running out of money. They say, we don't have anything left. And so Joseph says, towards the end of this chapter, he keeps giving the food, he keeps giving the food, and then eventually he says, well, bring me your livestock, and, and we'll just do a trade, and I'll keep providing food. I'll keep caring for the people and for the others who've come to seek refuge and seek care from me. But picking up in verse 29 of chapter 47, I want to highlight this scene. After all these things are taking place, it says, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. That's just basically like a secret handshake. It's a sign of, the, it's a sign of, uh, of making a covenant with one another. It's a sign of keeping a promise. Put your hand under my thigh, pinky swear, and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. He says, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. As I mentioned before, this, this chapter kind of closes with this scene of, of Joseph's business prudence, just on full display. He's continuing to build wealth for Pharaoh. He's continuing to provide for all these people. And he doesn't just do this for power or to make a great name for himself. Instead, what he's doing is he's leveraging his position to bless his people. Joseph used this opportunity that God had given him as a blessing from God that he might be a blessing to others. But Egypt wasn't the final destination for them. And I think Jacob reminds his son of that. He points his son back to what God was ultimately doing. Because at the end of chapter 47, Jacob makes this oath. He says, bring me out of Egypt and go bury me back in the promised land, back in the land of Canaan where my fathers are buried. And that's significant for a couple of reasons. But but primarily what it does is it highlights for Jacob and Joseph and the rest of the Israelites that Egypt wasn't home. That wasn't the destination. That wasn't where they belonged. They could serve God, they could live lives, they could build businesses, they could flourish, they could be a blessing to others, God could use them while they were in exile, but at the end of the day, they were just that, exiles and sojourners passing through. Church, I think there's a lot of significance to this passage, and and across all of this text, I think that we could look at a lot of different things and a lot of true things that we could highlight this morning. But as I said, what I'd like to do is focus on this example from Joseph's life about what it looks like to faithfully sojourn. Because in a sense, we too find ourselves called to live for God among the Egyptians. The Bible tells us that just as the people of God were here spiritually in exile, living among a people in, in a foreign land, we too spiritually are living as strangers here on earth. Meister Eckhart says it this way, God is at home and we are in the far country. This world is not our home and we are exiles. And so what I want us to see this morning is there is meaning and purpose to our exile. We are called to live for and be used by God even as we sojourn here on earth. And so I want to highlight just three aspects of what it looks like for us to faithfully sojourn. The first one is this we live for the kingdom. As faithful sojourners, we live for the kingdom. And I think what we see in Joseph's life is really a model of what it looks like to live faithfully for God while we are in exile. Because as sojourners, we live in earthly kingdoms, but we are called to live for the kingdom of God. And what that means for you and me is that we have the difficult task of living between two worlds. We live between two worlds, and that's not easy, is it? As Christians, our relationship to the world is tricky. It's complex. It's not as simple as just being fully at home here in the world or fully detaching from the world because we live here, but we're called to something else. There will be times when that isn't so much of a challenge, but as many of us are acutely aware, there are many times when it does become very difficult and very challenging, and it's a tough thing to navigate. And this was the experience, I think, of the Israelites living in Egypt, right? Because in this season of their life, they were going to, to Egypt to seek refuge, to get, to get food and to have a place to live. And this Pharaoh was generous and kind to them and blessed them. But it says in Exodus 1.8 that that Pharaoh died. And the very next Pharaoh that took over, that was the leader of the land of Egypt, did not know Joseph. And we know that story didn't end well for the Israelites, right? Because that same land where they went to seek refuge was the land they were later enslaved. This land where they came to find food was later the land where they they were forced into labor to work for this, this, this leader who oppressed them. As Christians and sojourners living for a kingdom, Jesus says, that is not of this world, that means that as long as we are in this world, we are going to feel the tension of that. As long as we are living for a world that isn't here and isn't present, but we occupy the present and look towards the kingdom, we're going to feel the tension and all the friction in our life that comes with that. Do you feel that? Do you know that well? You see that at work, among your family who may not know Christ, with people you interact with online, we feel the tension and friction of that. So what do we do, right? How do we live for the kingdom while we are here on earth? What do we do? Well, I think there's a couple of different options that people have taken, and I'm not saying they're all good, but there are a few different options. Some Christians have just simply tried to avoid that tension and avoid that friction by becoming like the world. Maybe even with the best of intentions of being missional or being relevant or being loving to their neighbors or trying to make friends and really just kind of be like everyone else. They allow themselves to be subtly shaped by the people in the culture and values of the world. Other Christians have sought to avoid this tension by simply escaping from the world. The motivation here is to just lean so hard into that exile identity that we're just going to do our own thing. We're going to publish our own books. We'll make our own movies. We'll, we'll do our own thing. We'll make our own schools. We'll, we'll move out of these neighborhoods with people with different value systems than ours, and we'll all move to one place and just make a little holy compound for one another, all in an effort to try to reduce the impact of living in a fallen world. But I'm also aware that there are a growing number of Christians who want to avoid this tension by going to war with the world? There are some Christians who want to avoid that tension by going to war. They feel fed up, frustrated, angry with how the world has changed, how their perception in the world has changed. And the world has changed, don't get me wrong, but they're tired of the way that Christians are mocked and dismissed. And so what do they do? Well, they say, well, we're going to wage war with the culture. We're going to wage war with the world seeking to take ground and aggressively reassert biblical Christianity among a people and in a world that has rejected it. Friends, let me say this clearly of all these options, that not one of these things is representative of the Bible's vision for Christians living for the kingdom in exile. Instead of becoming like the world, Titus 2.12 calls us to live upright and godly lives in the present age. Furthermore, we can't just withdraw from the world because there is purpose to our exile that through us the nations of the world would be blessed. And where in the Bible do we see a call to wage war with the world? It's nowhere. Where are we called to fight the culture in that way? We are exiles living in a foreign land. What else should we expect? So how do we do it then? How do we live for the kingdom faithfully as sojourners? I think a few things I'd like to point to. The first is this. We remain uncomfortable. We manage our expectations. And we become wise to the world. I want to talk about each of those things. For both Joseph and Jacob there was a recognition that Egypt was not the destination or home for God's people. Friends, I think much in the same way, we have to recognize as sojourners here on earth that we shouldn't be trying to get too comfortable here on earth. In fact, if we are too comfortable here on earth, it's probably a sign of one of two not-so-great things. One, it's either a sign that we've become disobedient to God and drifted into worldliness and we're not uncomfortable because we just look like and act like and talk like everybody else. Or we're not comfortable because we've neglected our calling to the world and we've drifted from the mission and disengaged with the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but just not be, get comfortable here. But second, we have to manage our expectations of what it will look like to be a Christian in exile. And I know this is a touchy subject for a lot of us because some of us feel the pressure of this, maybe some more than others, and it's tricky and tough to navigate what it looks like to be an exile in the world. And we see all these Christians taking it different directions and thinking different things and responding in different ways. But let me just say this in general. We shouldn't expect that the world will celebrate and love us or even tolerate us. Why should we? Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 19, that because the world hated him, they are going to hate us also. Therefore, we shouldn't be frustrated or angry or fall to despair when the world doesn't look like us and the world doesn't act like us and the world doesn't celebrate us for living for the kingdom here in exile. What we live for runs completely counter to the world. And that doesn't mean we respond by being combative or angry or waging war with the world. It simply means that we recognize that's my position. And Jesus, you told me that's my expectation for what it means to live for you in the fallen world. And I'm going to live with that tension. But finally, something else we see from the example of this passage. In order to faithfully live for the kingdom as sojourners, we have to become wise to the world. We see this very clearly, like I said in the example of Joseph, because we see uh, this promise repeated a couple times, starting in chapter 45, 18, and 20, and then later, once the family actually arrives, that Pharaoh was offering the best of all the land for the people. He was saying, hey, bring them here, and they can have whatever they want, whatever jobs they want, wherever they want to live, however they want to mix it up with us, they are welcome here. But even though Pharaoh offered the best of the land, Joseph chose to settle his family in the margins of Egypt and Goshen. You see, Goshen was a place very far away from the city center. Now, there were Egyptians there, and Egyptian culture pervaded that place. But it was kind of far away from maybe the influence or the direction or the rule of the Pharaoh. It was far away from the culture-making center of the bigger cities in Egypt. And Joseph chose to settle his family there. Why do we think that is? It's because Joseph didn't want his family to get drawn into Egyptian life. He recognized, hey, you're coming to a hostile place. You're coming to a place that that, that they're not here for you. They're not here to live the same kind of life as you, and I don't want you to fall into the way of life that they live for. So I'm going to move you out here to Goshen. Settle here. Friends, in the same way Joseph did, I think that we can wisely navigate our lives in this world so that we can remain faithful to God while living for the kingdom. And that doesn't require us to go settle in a land far away from the city sinners. That doesn't require us to withdraw from the world. It doesn't require us to just dismiss or become like the world. And it doesn't require us to go to war with the world. Instead, what we can do as followers of Jesus Christ in the world as sojourners is live our lives wisely for the kingdom understanding the ways and the influence of the world, and by the wisdom of God, navigating that well. So here's what this looks like practically. Practically, we can organize our lives and make decisions that will lead us and our families in faithfulness to God as we are in exile. We can make decisions and we can structure our lives in such a way that even if physically we do not find ourselves in the margin of the world, we can operate in the margin of the world. By God's wisdom, we can navigate this and be faithful to him, even in a land where we are exiled, in a place that is against us, in a people that do not know God. So I want to ask you this morning just to consider, how are you keeping yourself in the margins? all of us in some way are going to be present in the world. So what are you doing right now in your life to keep yourself in the margins? Where are you curbing some of your participation? Where are you setting yourself apart? Where are you making decisions that impact yourself and your family? How are you keeping your children in the margins? We can think wisely about how to operate in this life without hitting the nuclear option and just trying to leave. God is calling us to live faithfully for the kingdom in exile. So how are we doing that? The second aspect is this. To be faithful to God while we sojourn, we have to care for our fellow sojourners. I think what we see in the example of Joseph is his, him using his position of authority and, 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 and just his position and the favor that he had with Pharaoh to provide security and care for his people both physically and spiritually. And I think this model for us, the way that Joseph used his leverage that he had in Egypt to look after and meet the needs of God's people is an incredible example for us in how we ought to care for one another. And there's a couple things I think that we can see from this. First is that in this world, while we are in exile, we need to be a spiritual support system for one another. We can't be operating on this, in this life alone. In this passage, it's Joseph's wisdom that keeps his family from being drawn into the Egyptian way of life. He sets them up in Goshen, away from what might lead them astray. And I think this is an incredible example for what it looks like for us to guard one another's faith in a hostile world. Exile is not easy. It's a lot harder when we try to do it alone. But God has given us the gift of his church, our fellow sojourners, the people that we walk with, to encourage us and strengthen us and keep us. Hebrews 3, 12-13 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a wicked, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says encourage one another and build one another up. Romans 14.9 says pursue the things which make for peace and build up one another. This is our call. Friends, it's our responsibility to care for one another spiritually. John Piper, I've heard him say it this way, that faith is a community project. This is something that we are called to together. So I just ask you to consider this morning, as we are in exile in this world that is maybe hostile to us and difficult on us for different reasons, how are you meaningfully participating in the lives and faith of fellow believers? Are you at all? But secondly, I think this passage gives us an example of what it looks like to meet one another's needs physically. We have to meet one another's needs like family. This calling to one another that's in the Bible and evidenced here in this passage speaks to practical needs also. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. As fellow sojourners and members of Christ's church, we should be the type of community that truly cares for one another. And the way that we love one another should be so evident in how that is seen in the world. Because when it's family, right, you have no problem asking of or giving to liberally. That's the way we operate as family. So friends, I'd ask you to self-analyze your own life and self-analyze our church as well and ask yourself, are we the type of family that meets one another's needs physically? If I had to just answer that honestly, I may say that many of us in the circles we find ourselves don't even know of physical needs within our body how are we doing that? How are we meeting one another's needs here like a family? Do we show hospitality to one another like a family? Is your home open? Is your life open? Is your time? Is your calendar? Is your schedule? Is your pocketbook open to the people of God? There are those people. I know that you probably have these experiences. I'm thinking back to a couple of different people I can think of in my life that were part of my church. And they were just the kind of person, uh, two of them are older people, And when they died, it left a hole in my life. It left a hole in our church. When they were gone, there was just like this vacuum because their presence was felt. And when their presence was gone, we felt it harder. There are the kind of people, right? And you maybe know some right now in your own life. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody here at CTK. That when they were gone, when they moved away, when they died, whenever they passed on from your life, it just felt like it left a hole in our church. Let me tell you this. It's not a bad thing to have that type of impact on people. This is not an error. It is not a bad thing to die and leave a hole in your people's life. In fact, I would encourage you, die and leave a crater. Have the type of impact among the people of God where you are so meaningfully interwoven to their lives spiritually and physically that people can't imagine how life would go on without you. We have a faithful God and He's going to do it, but let's, let's seek to have that type of impact that we would care for one another generously, that we would be radical in how we lift up one another and build up one another and encourage one another and that that would be seen in the world and be felt by us. The last thing is this. If we're going to live faithfully to God as sojourners, we have to live missionally where we sojourn. We have to live missionally where we sojourn. When Jacob blessed Pharaoh, here's what that meant. It meant he recognized that God had exiled his people to Egypt for a purpose. God had exiled his people to Egypt for a purpose. And what we've seen throughout Genesis is really this unfolding of this covenant made with Abraham, right? That that God would bless them and make them into a great nation, that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. See this, the call to mission has been knit into the DNA of God's people from the beginning. What it means to be the people of God is a person on mission for God. And that mission of God that we see taking root all the way back in Abraham and all the way back to creation even, finds its ultimate meaning and direction in Christ. Jesus, it says in 1 Timothy 1.15, came into the world to save sinners. And he calls his disciples to participation in that mission. In John 17, verse 18, Jesus prays, he says, as you have sent me into the world, I also send them, my disciples, into the world. To be a follower of Christ to be a Christian is to be a participant in what God is doing here on earth. When, when Jesus commissions his disciples in Matthew 28, that call to be a blessing to the nation becomes a call to make disciples of all nations. What that means is, is that just as it was for Joseph and the Israelites sojourning in Egypt, God has a purpose for our exile. God has a purpose for our exile, and that purpose is that we proclaim the gospel where he has sovereignly placed us. Your life and your situation, where you work, the family, the city that you live in, everything that you are and where you are placed in your life is not a punishment, it's not a reward, it's certainly not a waste of time, it is a mission that God has called you to. I'm thankful that that's true all across our church. I think of someone newer to our church, Amanda Simmons, a professor at University of Cincinnati. Man, I'm thankful that God has exiled her. And she is intersecting with people's lives in a meaningful way. And I think about all of the missionary partners that we support, some abroad and some here in our city, like the Marcellas at at UC as well. I'm thankful that their exile has a purpose. I think of Kara Young. I don't know if she's in here anymore. She's saying so. She's here in spirit. In In the secular workforce being a model of the faith, being a model of the love of Christ to the people around her. I think of a a newer family to our church, Wade Thomas, who works at the modern-day Dunder Mifflin, from what I can tell, who who has maybe the most boring, pencil-pushing job that I can imagine, but man, I'm thankful that he's exiled in a place that matters. I'm looking around the room this morning and I see, I see physicians. I see like 80% of you are engineers. I see, like, I see moms who spend the most of their time at home. I see teachers. I see all of these people in different places in all of life. And what I want you to hear is that God has a purpose in your sojourning. And what I want us to see, friends, is that our time in Egypt can't be time wasted. God has called us to be missional as we sojourn. No matter what the season of your life is, Whether you work or you don't work, no matter what shape your life takes, God has a purpose to your sojourning, and that is to take part in his mission to the world. Whether you push paper or you raise kids or you preach sermons for a living, this is God's call on our lives. And so this morning, I would just ask us to consider in closing, that as we see this example playing out thousands of years ago among the people of God sojourning in Egypt, we look at that model and we look at that example and ask ourselves, how are we faithfully sojourning? How are we faithfully sojourning? Am I truly living for the kingdom or do I look like the world? Am I too comfortable here? Also, how are you you making an impact in the lives of fellow believers as we sojourn? We see this incredible example of the spiritual and physical care that Joseph had. How are you making craters in the lives of the people around you? And lastly, how are you engaging in the mission of God? Maybe this feels far from you. Maybe you're actually in a season of life right now. I know my wife is as a a new mother where you're like, everything looks different in my life my world got smaller and everything got busier and I don't know what that looks like anymore. Maybe that's where you are right now. I know we have a lot of mothers in that place as well. And God's call in your life isn't small. I want you to hear that and be encouraged by that, that God can use you in a mighty and impactful way in the lives of your family and your neighbors and the people around you. And for you men and women in the, in the workplace that find yourself among the people feeling that exile firsthand maybe sometimes, God is going to use you in mighty ways. How are you living missionally where you are sojourning, no matter what that looks like? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as you send us out as disciples to all the nations, people who have been changed by you, who have been brought into your family as fellow sons and daughters and friends. And Father, my heart is encouraged by the fact that you said that you'd be with us always till the end of the age. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and love and generosity in how we navigate the world as we seek to be faithful to you, as we sojourn, as we seek to live for your kingdom. Father, give us a radical call to one another, but that that call would not terminate there, that we would see our purpose as being On mission to the world around us, Father, I pray that we would find ourselves rooted in this story that you have been writing among your people for thousands of years. Father, I pray that we'd be encouraged and strengthened, that we'd be compelled. Father, you call us to faithfulness. Father, we want to live in this world in such a way that people see you, that they see and taste your kingdom. Father, that they long for the goodness, truth, and beauty that is found in you and evidence in how you are transforming your people. Father, exile us for a time. But Father, draw our hearts and minds and affections always towards the kingdom. And Father, use us mightily as long as we are here. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.